Good. Awesome. Um, so, uh, if you weren't here last weekend for any reason, um, or, you know, have been sleeping under a rock as far as following Real Hope on social media, um, then let me tell you about the Matthew 25 challenge that we kicked off. So it's a text-based challenge with this organization, amazing organization called World Vision. And essentially every single day, we were text a challenge to do that day that aligns with Jesus's words in Matthew 25 um, and helps us have a glimpse into um, just the world of poverty um, and how the majority, honestly, of our globe and our planet lives and helps us kind of understand what it's like to experience day-to-day life um, in that poverty. So last year, uh, our church participated in the Matthew 25 challenge, but it was just um, kind of being piloted by World Vision. Um, so it wasn't public yet. It was just extended to a few churches and World Vision's um, network to say, hey, would you guys try this program out before we really push it and roll and, and roll it out um, to churches nationwide? So we had an opportunity to be one of those churches. So we got to do the Matthew 25 challenge last year. Our church was a little over a year old, um, and we had uh, 52 people opt in to the Matthew 25 challenge. We were really excited about that. I mean, just being a little over a year old um, and kind of, you know, asking people to push out of their comfort zones uh, for a week. And so we were really excited about that. Well, this year we had 144 people opt into the Matthew 25 challenge. And then we had 15 of those 144 um, that did the, what's called the extreme challenge. So as things each day kind of accumulated, so they were doing, you know, on day three, they were doing day one, day two, and day three. Um, and so that's 144 people that were committing to really face the realities of everyday life for the millions of people living in poverty. Um, and and we've loved hearing your stories throughout the week um, and seeing pictures on Instagram and on Facebook. We've heard stories of, you know, teenagers that are initiating conversations with their parents about privilege and just the responsibility that comes with having privilege, um, which if you interact with teenagers at all, you know that's a big deal for a teenager to initiate a conversation like that. Um, even my 10-year-old, after um, us one night mixing dirt into water and asking, you know, hey, w- would you drink this water? And his response was, and I quote, I would rather go to heaven then drink that water, which I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, heaven, sure, who wouldn't? But um, understanding what he was saying of literally, like, I-, I would rather die than have to drink that cup of dirty water that you just had. And then my husband and I having an opportunity to explain, um, well, that's the reality for millions of people, actually roughly 600 million people in our world. That's the reality of their daily water intake and their access to their water um, sources. And And I remember how I felt um, on uh, one of the days where I uh, had fasted. It was the day that we fasted through lunch, and I'd fasted through lunch, and um, I went that evening uh, to go work out that day. And I just remember working out how incredibly drained and weak I felt, um, because the last time I had eaten was that morning. And then it occurred to me that you know, what I'm doing, working out, this is exactly what five and six-year-olds experience every single day. Um, Not having three meals a day and then making a four-mile trek to get water for their family. And so at at me, at 34 years old, and definitely being bigger than most five and six-year-olds for sure, if I knew how weak I felt 
remembering those five and six-year-olds and how weak that they must feel. And so it's not surprising that they can't do things like concentrate at school um, or continue to develop or, or thrive. And so I was shocked for me how powerful this challenge was this week because honestly, I thought, yeah, you know what? Like we did that last year. My family did that last year. Like I, I felt like, you know what? I'm, this is like old hat. I know what to expect with this. Um, but the reality was is that this year was just as impacting as last year for a lot of different reasons. And so I'm so excited that we as a church got to experience that together and that we get to come together and kind of reflect on what that was like as a church. Um, and so I hope that it was powerful for you as well in different ways. Um, But I think the thing that I'm most excited about this morning is the fact that our church is really just getting started in what we're going to be doing with World Vision and how we're going to be able to approach really this epic problem of poverty throughout our globe. And we are going to be able to be a part of the many organizations that are fighting um, tirelessly to provide clean water to kids, to um, provide uh, agricultural education and various things that help really fight um, poverty throughout our globe. So here's what I want you to do. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we have those on the table that you can use for you. Also, I would really encourage you to go ahead and get the message note card out and a pen out or whatever maybe you bring, a journal or something like that, because we're going to be talking about a lot of different points. We're going to have a lot of different scriptures today, and um, I would love for you to take notes to be able to reflect on this um, chapter throughout the week. Now, if those of you that were here last week, you may be thinking, okay, wait a second, um, Matthew 25 is exactly what Ryan preached on. Like, why are we going over this again? Well, a couple reasons. One, I believe that scripture is so dense, it's so rich, um, that really we can get something different out of the same passage, the same group of verses every time that we read it. I know that this is true for me, um, and this happens to me a lot. I'll read a passage that I know I've read a hundred times, and something different will jump out to me at that time, because that's why, that's how God's word works. It is alive, it is living. Um, But the other reason is, is that I think that uh, we could go over this particular one over and over and over again, and still probably not grasp all of the complexities of what Jesus is saying. Because we live in a very me-centric culture. We live in a culture that's often, you know, um, couched in, I need blank. I deserve blank. I worked hard for blank. It's a very me-centric culture. And this passage in Matthew 25 really goes against all of that. It goes against this me-centric culture. And so it is good for us to read Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46 on a normal routine basis to just remind ourselves what exactly we are supposed to be committed to and doing here on this earth. And I think this is especially true for those of us that are in Western Christianity, Because I think we oftentimes buy into ideas that exist only in Western Christianity, but we buy into them like they're the gospel. Like that these are things that people all across the globe thinks like. Here's a great example of that. We say things like, I wish I knew what God was calling me to do. I wish I knew what God was calling me to do. And here's the thing. That is a very self-centered idea 
of Christianity. And it tends to only exist in Western Christianity. It's not a God-centered mindset because here's why. Most of the rest of the world does not have the option to have those choices. They don't have the option to have those choices. They farm to eat, right? They sell eggs because they have chickens. They grow coffee beans because that's what their parents did And that's what their parents before their parents did. And so that's what they do. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. Like here, please hear me. I'm not saying that it's wrong that we seek God's will for our life or that we have this desire to do what he wants us to do. Because I think that that's where that phrase comes from a lot of times. I really do. I think it comes from a good place. So I'm not saying it's wrong that we do that. But what is wrong is that we think that everyone else on the planet lives like that too. Because that's just simply not true. We can't believe that all there is to Christianity and to following Christ is to just walk around kind of with this mindset of, you know, what, what, you know, what should I do with my life? What does God want me to do with my life? Because really, here's the thing, following Christ, it's really as simple as just opening your eyes and looking for where Jesus is that day. That's really what following Christ is. So that's why you have unbelievable movements of Christianity in countries that are very oppressed by a government or countries um, that are, are ridden in poverty and disease because you have people that all they're saying is, you know, we just want to look for Jesus that day. And whatever we're doing that day, if it's selling eggs, if it's um, living in a refugee camp, whatever it is, that day we want to honor Christ with what's in front of us. Because that is what following Christ is all about. Seeing Jesus. And that's what this passage in Matthew 25 is all about. So I want to set this passage up for you a little bit. Um, So Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's in the last week of his life. He knows what's coming. And so he is trying to teach his disciples, and he's teaching them through what he often does, storytelling, teaching them through parables, but he's trying to really prepare his disciples for the fact that he's not going to be with them face-to-face for much longer, that he's going to leave them at some point. And so he's actually talking kind of in this section of the gospel of Matthew. He's talking about the end times. He's talking about what it's going to be like when he, he, yes, when he dies and he is resurrected and he ascends. But then when he comes back, what's that going to be like? Because he's preparing them for the fact that he's going to be gone. So Jesus, I brought a map just to kind of show you what, what is going on. So Jesus leaves the temple, which is over here. And he's with his disciple on the Mount of Olives, which is right here. And the Mount of Olives isn't actually like a mountain. It's, it's kind of more like a hill, like a large hill. And so he's sitting on this large hill with his disciples. And he begins to teach them. And again, like Jesus often does, he's teaching through parables. Um, But the reason that it's so important that I want you guys to know that Jesus is in the last week of his life is because he is only going to talk about the things that are really important to him. He's not going to waste conversation talking about things that he doesn't really think matters. He wants to make sure that what he's teaching his disciples and the conversations that he's having with his disciples are the things that are not, that, that he wants to make sure that they don't go unsaid. 
You tracking with me? Like, these are the things that are important with to Christ, and he wants to make sure that they know. So that's where we are in Matthew chapter 25. And so let's start. We're going to start in verse 31, um, and I'm going to stop a couple times as we're reading through just to give some commentary and talk about what's um, going on. So let's read Matthew chapter 25. Uh, We're going to start in verse 31. This is what it says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will, and I want you to underline the rest of verse 32. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then verse 33, he will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on his left. All right, let's stop right there, okay? Because I think that when you read that, there's so many questions that need to be answered. Or maybe they're just questions that pop up in my mind when I read them. Um, But I think of things like, why sheep and goats? Like, why are those the two animals that he went, or why animals at all? You know, why are there angels all around Jesus? Where is he coming from? And why is he separating the sheep in the goat and does the left and the right matter like these are the type of questions that come up in my mind that I think need to kind of be answered to understand the fullness of this picture that Jesus is trying to paint well so if you remember from from last week and and what I just said Jesus is in the middle of talking about the end times okay so he's painting this picture for his disciples so in verse 31 that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the son of man he's talking about himself that was something that was a title that Jesus had when he's talking about himself he's going to come down in his glory angels are going to be so that's why all of that's with him right he's talking about what that's going to be like when he comes back okay um but then He's also trying to do what any great storyteller would do, which is use elements in the story that his audience is going to be familiar with. This is why he's using sheep and goats, okay? Because his disciples would have been very familiar with the role of a sheep and a shepherd. One, because it's an agricultural society. But another reason is because sheep are actually very commonly referred to figuratively as as israelites as people that are following god in the old testament and a shepherd is very much throughout the old testament um figuratively referred to a lot as god okay and sheep tend to be very docile animals they tend to be very obedient to the shepherd um even dependent on the shepherd um while goats are more stubborn and honorary And listen, you don't have to be a farmer to know this to be true, or you don't have to have lived in the time, in biblical times, to know this is true. If you have ever been to a petting zoo at all, you know that this is true, okay? Because what's the one animal in the petting zoo that is always headbutting the other animals? Or the one animal that's running over your toddler to try to get those, like, 25-cent pellets that you bought to go into the petting zoo? It's the goats, The goats can be jerks sometimes. So Jesus is trying to paint this picture of these sheep and these goats. And so this is why the shepherd would often separate them. So that the goats wouldn't be harassing the sheep. It was not an uncommon thing. So the disciples would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have immediately been able to picture that in their mind. And so that's what Jesus is talking about right there. So let's go ahead and keep going in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right... Now, this is the sheep. 
Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Those of you that did the Matthew 25 challenge, I'm going to kind of walk through this real fast for you just to refresh. That is why day one, we fasted lunch, right? I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. This was why we drank only water on day two. I was a stranger. You invited me in. This is why we slept on the floor on day three in solidarity with the millions of refugees around our globe. Verse 36, I needed clothes and you clothed me. This is why we wore the same clothes on day four. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. This is why we reached out to someone in a hard time on day five to let them know that they were cared and they were noticed. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, these are the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for you. I'm sorry, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Verse 44, they will also answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, and I want you to underline the rest of verse 45 and 46 as we get into it. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So here's the first point for today. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing to write down. It's this, is that how we treat others reveals our heart condition. How we treat others reveals our heart condition. Here's what I think what happens. I think a lot of times we read Matthew 25, we get to the end of it, and we're like, oh, crap, I need to treat people like I would treat Jesus. That, that's what I need to do. But here's the thing. If that's all we walked away with from Matthew 25, we would really be missing the point that Jesus is trying to make because Jesus isn't saying this. He's not saying, hey, when people are far from God, when people are suffering, when people are different than you, when you encounter those kind of people, I just want you to try really hard to imagine that they're me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's saying, hey, remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 27? This is what it says. He says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is reminding us in Matthew 25 that every person is created in the image of God. And here's the reality of it. That truth alone should change the way that you look at people. Jesus isn't saying, hey, just try really hard to imagine that when you see someone in need, like, that that it's me. He's saying, no, 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 no. 
that is a version of me. Because Genesis chapter 1 tells us that every person is created in the image of God. Do you guys remember um, the parable of the Good Samaritan? We're not going to turn there. We don't, we don't have time to read it. Um, but if you're familiar with that story, just try to remember it with me. If you're not, um, I'm going to kind of sum it up for you real fast. But um, So there's a man... And uh, he's a rich man, and he comes up to Jesus, and he essentially says, listen, Jesus, I want to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind. I want to love my neighbor as myself, so can you tell me who my neighbor is? And then Jesus launches into this big parable of the Good Samaritan, but in effect, and here's the moral of the story, Jesus says, anybody that is in need is your neighbor. Anyone that's in need is your neighbor. In fact, the scripture tells us in the story of the Good Samaritan that when this Good Samaritan sees the man suffering on the side of the road, sees him beat up on the side of the road, the scripture actually says that he had compassion on him. He uses that word compassion. And here's what um, you should know about that word compassion. That word compassion, the Greek word for the word compassion, it actually means that there is something that like churns in your bowels. Okay? That there is a pit in your stomach that leads you to scream out, I need to do something. So when this good Samaritan walks by and he sees this man and the scripture tells us that he has compassion on him, it's not just like he felt sorry for him. It's a he had this emotion inside of him that he could not help but move and help that person. He had literally a, a pit, a churning in his stomach. They could only be satisfied by doing something. And here's the, here's the reality of it, is that every time we see need, we are filled with something. Now, sometimes, some of us, if we're being honest, are filled with apathy or judgment. But some of us are filled with compassion, like the Good Samaritan. And, and if you are then what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 is that that is the evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It is an evidence that your heart is soft and it's tender toward God. Because whenever Jesus saw a need, that's exactly what he did. He was moved with compassion and he acted on it. And we know this to be true because because look at this passage in 1 John. It's going to be up on the screen. You don't need to turn in your Bible there. Um, it's going to be on the screen for you. But this passage in 1 John four nineteen through 21, it says this. We loved, we love because he, being Jesus, first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So now he, here's the question for this, right? Here's the question for, okay, how we treat other reveals our heart condition. And, you know, yes, yes, we like we get it. it it's, our heart is tender and all that kind of stuff. But, but how, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we actually 
act on needs that we meet. And, and, and because I think the reason that that's a stumbling block for us is, is not actually because most people don't feel some sort of something when they see a need. I, I am an optimist. I like to believe that mankind is better than that, that most people, when they see a need, they are something is moved inside of them. But I think the thing that prevents us from acting is just the size of the need that exists in our world. I mean, there are so many people that are hungry in this world. There are so many that are thirsty. There are so many that are sick. There are so many in prison that no one ever comes to visit them. And I think we develop this attitude where we're like, I can't do it all. And because I can't do it all, maybe I'm not going to do anything. Well, yeah, you're right. You can't do it all. That's, yes, that, that is true. But that's not what Jesus asks us to do. What he asks us to do is he's saying, what can you do for the one What can you do for one person at a time? What can you do for the one need that is sitting right in front of you right now? Can you meet that need? Well, yeah, we can can meet that one need, yes. And it's been my experience, this is just my story, but it's been my experience that when we're faithful with that one need put in front of us, then God will provide another one. We're faithful with that one, and then he provides another one, and we're faithful with that one. And guess what? Before you know it, you know what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And you're doing God's will because you're just looking for Jesus where he exists that day, and you're being faithful for that one need put right in front of you. So um, there's this story that I absolutely love. Some of you may have heard it before, um, but... It's so impactful, and it reminds me of this concept, and so this is what it is. It's um, this little boy, he's walking along on a beach, and he looks out along the shoreline, and he literally sees like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of starfish all on the sand because the high tide from the ocean had brought all of these starfish in and dumped them on the sand, but then it was low tide, so none of them could be brought back into the water, right? The sun's up, and so essentially these starfish are going to dry out, and they're going to die. So this little boy, he's walking along the beach, and he's just picking up a starfish, and he's throwing it back in the water, and he's picking up a starfish, and he's throwing it back in the water. And this older man comes up to him, and he says, what are you doing? Little boy kind of just looks at him, and he's like, there is no way you can get all of these hundreds of starfish back into this ocean, like you're, wa- you're wasting your time. You're not even going to make a dent in this problem. How are you even going to make a difference? And the little boy just looks up at him, and he bends over, and he picks up another starfish, and he throws it back in the water, and he says to the man, well, it made a difference for that one. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. That's even why, if you look in verse 40... Of Matthew 25, Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these. I don't know if you guys picked up on that when we first read it through, but that's what it says. He actually uses the word one. He says, one of the least of these you did for me. So then how do we do this? Well, here's the first thing. We do it by just committing to these two things, but here's the first one. It's by opening your eyes. Open your eyes. Again, I'm convinced that there is need all around us. 
if we would just have spiritual eyes, if we would just open our eyes, I know and I'm convinced that God wants to show us and give us some insight and understanding into the needs that Jesus wants us to see. We just have to open our eyes and have a willingness of heart to see that. I don't know about you guys, but every single time I took a drink of water this week, I had this little girl's picture in my mind. That's true. Some of you have her card on your table. And this was the image that I had in my mind. I, I, I had the image during Cheru's video. I think it was, uh, was it day two where we uh, drank only water that day? Of Cheru in the video of her with her key tea kettle, you know, squatting down into what you or I would consider a mud hole, taking the lid of the tea kettle and filling it up. And every time this week I drank my very clear Ozarka water, I remember true. And I allowed my eyes to see that image. And here's the thing. It would be, yes, much easier to close your eyes. Sure it would be. It would be much easier to block those feelings. But that's not what Jesus is asking us to do. In fact, that's what he's saying. Really, the goats in this parable, that's, that's what they were doing. We have to open our eyes. And then here's the second thing. You have to open your hands. Open your eyes and open your hands. You know, I, and I know most of you in this room, we have been blessed in some immeasurable ways. You know, even times in life where um, things seem tight for our personal family or um, for our budget, um, I can't help but think that even on those days, I mean, the amazing blessings and the ways that God has provided for our family is immeasurable, especially compared to the rest of the world. And here's the deal. If you can live with an open hand to the gifts that have been given to you, then you can make a difference in someone's life. Because here's what changes in your mind. You realize that those gifts were never yours in the beginning. That any blessing that you or I have ever received has come straight from God. Any opportunity to education, any interview for a job we've ever gotten, any door that has ever been opened for us, that has all come from God. And the way in which you open your hands is evidence, again, to a heart condition, to your heart being tender toward Christ. The way in which we open our eyes and we open our hands, that's how we do this. That's how we fight the problem of poverty. That's how we do for one of the least of these, like we would do for Jesus. All right, so that's the, f- the first idea in Matthew 25 is this, is that, you know, how we treat others reveals our heart condition. Here's the second one. The second is this, is that how we treat others will reveal our eternal destiny. Now listen, before some of you guys get in an uproar about your theology here, before I start getting, you know, emails, or better yet, Ryan gets emails, let me clarify what I want to, what, what this is saying a little bit, because I think we obviously need to be careful when we read passages like this, and passages like this have very much been misinterpreted to give some 
really bad theology. And that's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, what, I, what I want to do here, Real Hope Family, is I want to show you that it is incredibly clear throughout Scripture that we cannot earn our salvation. And because it's incredibly clear throughout Scripture that we cannot earn our salvation, that's how we know that that's not the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 25. That, that's how we um, wrestle and that's how we do Bible um, interpretation, okay? It's really not this fancy thing that you, that you have to go to school for. Let me just tell you this. If you ever come upon something in Scripture and you're wondering, you know what, that's, that's I don't know. The best thing you can do is go look in other places in the Bible of what, what are other scriptures that address that topic? What are the other scriptures that are kind of saying, what's the, what's the evidence and support for that scripture, okay? So he, here's the thing. It, it, there are passages all over the Bible, right, that show that um, salvation is given us to freely. I think one of the best ones, though, is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. This is the Apostle Paul, and this is what he says. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here's the thing, though. Many times, that's where we stop, right? We're like, oh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Salvation is a free gift. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love. And yes, that is true. That is all true. But let's see what Paul says in verse 10. This is what Paul says in verse 10. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So here's what Paul's saying. In verses 8 and 9, Paul is really addressing the how we are saved. Okay, he's saying, hey, listen, this is how you are saved. But then in verse 10, he addresses why we are saved and the purpose in which we are saved. Because you and I are the workmanship of God created to do good works that were prepared in advance for us. It's not to earn our salvation. It's not even to just look like we're really good or even trendy people, right? It's that it is a reflection of the heart change that has happened. So Paul's saying, hey, this is how you are saved in verses 8 and 9. But because of that, and because your heart has been changed by that, now you are the workmanship of God, in verse 10, to do works that were created for you well in advance. And that's why Paul puts verse 10 after 8 and 9. Paul's a smart guy. There is a reason he wrote and put things in the order that he did. He's saying, verse 8 and 9, this is how you are saved. It's nothing you did. Because if it was, why would Christ have had to die on the cross? That's a pretty costly sacrifice for something that we could have earned. He's saying, no, no, it's, it's freely given to you. But because your heart has been changed, here's what needs to happen with your life from this point forward in verse 10. You are now God's workmanship. He's saying, you know, listen, it has less to do with your ability of how many verses you can recite in the Bible, how many, all the right answers you can give, and it has more to do with the evidence of your heart transformation. Um, because when your heart is genuinely transformed by the power of God's grace, you can't help but extend grace to other people. You can't help but love others well, because you're 
so often reminded of what God did for you. Jesus is saying here in Matthew 25 that the evidence that you love me is how you love other people. The evidence that you belong to me is that you have been radically transformed by the power of Christ so much so that it drives you to make a difference in this world. You aren't saved by works, but here's the deal. Once you are saved, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in you is how you care about God's greatest creation, which is people. So the first idea that we had is that how we treat others reveals our heart condition. The second idea is that how we treat others reveals our eternal destiny. And here's the third idea that we walk away with from Matthew 25. It's that how we treat others is how we treat Jesus. How we treat others is how we treat Jesus. Um, This is how Mother Teresa once put it, and I think this quote is unbelievable. She said, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. I serve because I love Jesus. Every one of them is Jesus in disguise. And that's a perfect example of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 25. You know, Mother Teresa, she says, I serve because I love Jesus. That's where it comes from. It comes from a heart transformation. And this is really the punchline that Jesus is getting to, to this entire story. It's like he's painstakingly getting to this punchline. It's like he's going and he's saying, hey, listen, I know you don't remember that when I was hungry, giving me something to eat. And I know that you don't remember that when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And that when I was naked, you clothed me. But here's the punchline. What you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. But the other side of that coin is that, you know what, when you scorned me or you didn't care for the least of these, then the truth of the matter is that you didn't care about me. And Jesus is telling us again and again and again that he identifies with the least of these, that he lives amongst the least of these. That is his tribe, And so he's saying, you know what, if you're in my tribe, if you identify with me, if you've been transformed with me, well then the least of these is now your people too. They're the ones you live amongst. They're the ones that break your heart because it breaks my heart. Here's what I want you to do for um, just a minute. I want you to actually look at your hands. So take your hands out, look at your hands. I want you to make a fist, two fists, okay? Here's the reality. You and I, we are born with clenched fists. I've had the amazing pleasure in my 34 years so far here on earth to be around a lot of babies, four of which have been my own. Babies oftentimes, not every single one, but oftentimes babies literally come out with clenched fists. If you give a baby your finger and you put it in their hand, this is actually how pediatricians check for development, what happens? They close it. If you give them a toy, what happens? They close it, right? You and I were born with fists that are clenched shut. 
When we graduate, we go on and we graduate from um, high school or we graduate from college. What's the first thing that people do? They grab their diploma, they clinch it, they hold it up in the air as some sort of symbol for the hope of future, right? We get out of college, we get our first job, we clinch onto that first rung of some mythical corporate ladder, and we continue to climb and climb and climb and climb, hoping to get to the very top rung at some point. That then will lead us into retirement, which then we're clinching onto a 401k or some sort of retirement package, right? Till eventually we get to the end of our lives, and we might even be clinching then onto a hospital bed of some sort until we die, And our hands are released and we're opened and we realize for the first time that everything that we were clinching on was not permanent. And any of the things that we really did clinch on, again, were gifts from God. We are naturally people that clinch our fists. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hands again and open them. Keep them open this time, right? And try to imagine what your life would look like if you didn't walk through it clenching onto everything, especially those things that maybe society even tells you is important. You kept your hands open. How could God use you How could he use the resources that he's given you, the education that he's given you, the opportunities that he's given you? And listen, we didn't ask you, you, and you can put your hands down, we didn't ask you to go through this Matthew 25 challenge this last week to make you feel guilty about the things that we have. We asked you to do it so that we could respond with a heart of gratitude for what God has given us and for what he has done that we could open our hands a little bit more and say, you know, God, in light of all the blessings that you've given me, I want to be a blessing to other people. Because of how you have radically transformed my life, I want to be a part of radically transforming other people's lives. Because of the grace that was extended to me, I want to extend grace to other people. See, I pray that this challenge today, that it wouldn't just end today, um, but that God would have done a work in your heart and in my heart that would allow us to become more and more like Jesus in the, in the coming days. So that this concept of living a life with our eyes open and with our hands open, um, that this would be something that is just a very normal but radical part of our lives. And that that one decision as a church, that that would change our church, that it would change our community, that it would change our globe, even if it is just one life at a time.